today on Ag News Daily. Without the contribution of pollinators. So for us, it's a lot about, you know, going beyond just bringing bees to a farm, but really thinking about where do we place those bees on the farm relative to the natural environment, making sure that our bees are really healthy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and happy Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Today's episode is, of course, sponsored by our friends at Performance Livestock Analytics. And Ashton, it is another hot summer day here in fall uh, in central Iowa. We're having some summer temperatures, even though we have actually entered into the fall season. We're actually a little bit cooler down here, not to rub it in your face or anything, Delaney, but... It came a flood last night. I was just sitting on my couch randomly doing homework at like 9.30. And I thought that my upstairs neighbor was just being loud again, but it was actually thunder. And then it just came pouring. I wasn't expecting to have a thunderstorm last night, but I'm glad that we did. Well, we certainly need some rain up here, Ashton. You know, a lot of folks are in the fields. Uh, We're in the fields and it's dry, bone dry. We really could use some rain up here. So maybe you can send some of that our way. All right, I'll do a rain dance and hope for the best. (laughs) But Delaney, I'm going to move ahead here and talk about some news because I've got about four stories that I wanted to share today, a little bit more than I normally have. And I'm going to kick things off talking about an Arkansas farmer. Of course, we're getting into soybean harvest here. And he says that he's trying not to get too excited about this year's crop. Derek Haigwood, who farms about 90 miles northeast of Little Rock, Arkansas, says that this crop looks really good. He said that with prices and yields, you almost never get those at the same time. With this year, if everything holds together, we'll have one of those years and we needed it. We suffered through the trade war and we've suffered through some odds and ends and this is coming together. And correct me if I'm wrong, Delaney, but Arkansas did see a little bit of damage and bad weather because of Hurricane Ida. So I'm glad that they are expecting a good crop or at least this farmer is. So a little Mm -hmm. bit of feel good news today. Um, I've actually met Derek Hagwood. He is on, he's on a commodity board. I can't remember which one, but yeah, he's a great guy, Ash. And that's really funny. He is quoted in this article, but yes, you're absolutely right. A lot of farmers really all across the country are saying that yields are looking pretty good. You either have yields this year that are looking good or you don't. But along those same lines, we saw yesterday the USDA crop progress report, which I know we'll be posting now weekly, of course, on our Ag News Daily Twitter and Facebook handle to keep you posted on where the nation's corn and sweeping crops sit as far as harvest completion. And we saw corn harvest picked up steam last week, moving ahead eight percentage points to reach 18% complete as of Sunday, September 26th, which is four percentage points ahead of last year and three percentage points ahead of the five-year average. On the soybean side of things, well, actually, let me also just mention that corn conditions were also unchanged last week, sitting at 59% good to excellent. So we are seeing uh, some strength there. And soybeans accelerated pace as well, moving 10 percentage points ahead to reach now 16% completed as of Sunday, two percentage points behind last year, but three points ahead overall when you look at the five-year average. So really those states that are picking up steam as far as hard 
harvest goes are those southern states, but we are starting to see quite a few states up here in the Midwest picking up steam as well. And Ashton, what you're saying there with yield is kind of what we're seeing. You know, a lot of folks are saying, hey, we thought this crop was going to be a little bit worse than it was. And that's kind of the sentiment I've heard across the board. So like I said, you either have a really good yield this year or unfortunately you don't, but I'm hearing more good yields than bad. And that's certainly exciting. It's especially after the past, you know, 18 plus months of, I feel like nothing but bad news, starting to get some good things rolling out here. But unfortunately, I'm going to take things back down here with some not so good news if this is to be true. Of course, last week, Delaney, you and I talked about the rumored numbers when it comes to the renewable fuel standard and the EPA rumors and all of that stuff. And members of Congress are rallying this week amid those rumors that the Biden administration plans to reduce federal biofuel blending requirements. A bicameral group led by U.S. Democrat representatives Sherry Bustos of Illinois, Cindy Axney of Iowa, and Minnesota's Angie Craig and U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar sent a letter to the White House this week urging the administration to reject any attempt to lower renewable volume obligations in the RFS. We also heard from Iowa U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley And he says that if the leaked RVOs are real, that this is, quote, going to be the worst week in Washington for ethanol ever. He told Brownfield Ag News that there needs to be an uprising in Congress to prevent the Biden administration from choosing big oil over family farmers. So, you know, last week, of course, Delaney, you and I were talking about if these numbers were real, what we're going to see. And it looks like we're seeing quite a bit of movement this week. Yeah, I'm seeing this come out in the news as well, Ashton. So I don't know, we've been floating around these rumors for maybe two or three weeks now. So maybe this is the week we finally start to see what's actually going to happen there. But I want to take things international here for a moment as we look at soybean prices and soybean closures in China. Now, there's a couple of geopolitical events going on here that I think all of our listeners need to be aware of, which has kind of a trickle-down effect into multiple industries, including, of course, our export industry, both shipping exports and receiving exports. China's Northeast Industrial Heartland has been crippled today by many electricity shortages, with more than 20 soybean facilities have now been shuttered due to these power shortages, which is really impacting China's ability to produce not only soybean crushing, which they need to feed their growing hog herd, but also other products such as coal and uh, other mined goods in that area. So, That's going on on the one hand. And so as Beijing is moving to cut energy consumption, we've really seen this impact lots of industries, but most most specifically here, agriculture in China. Now, you couple that with this piece of news, Ashton, because a lot of folks I know have been asking about fertilizer prices. And that's something I know we're working to get an interview on because a lot of producers have questions about what does 2022 look like? Are we going to see a shortage of fertilizer? Are we going to continue to see these elevated prices? And this piece of news tying in nicely here with China's electricity shortages, I think plays a nice picture. China is ending phosphate exports through the end of June of 2022, which according to experts, they say it should further tighten the available supply of nitrogen and phosphate markets here over the next six to eight months. 
There's a lot of reasons for this, but a big one is because China is working to cut down some of their electricity and overall energy uses. And unfortunately, fertilizer and phosphate is one of those things that they seem to be shying away from. So all in all, there's a lot of events here that could could majorly impact producers' balance sheets heading into 2022. And hopefully we get some answers or, you know, just a little bit more of a clarification when it comes to the fertilizer industry. We're hoping to get that nailed down soon so we can answer some questions that our audience might have. But unfortunately, Delaney, I don't have any international news, so I'm going to keep things here in the U.S. And I have some interesting numbers, some interesting data that I wanted to share with you when it comes to carbon credits. Of course, the ag industry has really been focusing on carbon sequestration over the last, you know, at least year, year and a half or so. And we have some numbers here. And, you know, with it being such a big topic in agriculture, you know, it being carbon credits, you would figure that there might be a little bit more of a role that we play when it comes to carbon credits. But I have some data here showing that agriculture accounts for just 1% of the carbon credits sequestered so far. Forestry and land use come in first place with about 45.8% of the credits, followed by renewable energy and then waste management, chemical processes, household and community, individual manufacturing, carbon capture and storage, then agriculture. And then in last place, we have the transportation industry with 0.1% of carbon credits captured. And I just thought this was really interesting. And I wanted to share that with you, Delaney, since we've been talking so much about carbon and see if you had anything to add. Well, Ashton, I think that this kind of hits a key issue on the head, because as you look at Folks, I won't name any names, but you look at folks out in Washington, D.C. that are putting together legislation and trying to create policies that are dealing with carbon credits and our overall uh, footprint. They're creating policy that focuses primarily on agriculture when we're such a small percentage of it. You know, you look at industries that are contributing to the overall greenhouse gas emissions, the overall um issue when it comes to the environment. Agriculture plays a really small role in that. And we have probably the most to do as far as our ability to help with this issue. But I think a lot of the finger gets pointed to us as well as where the issue, why it's happening. And really, that's not the case. I would have to agree with you there, Delaney. I'm excited that we're able to play some kind of role when we're talking about, you know, climate change mitigation and and those kinds of things. But I really get upset when the finger just gets pointed to the ag industry when there's so many other things that we have to take into consideration. Um, But I just have one other story that I wanted to share with you real quick, Delaney, talking about Prop 12. Of course, Prop 12 is supposed to go into effect on January 1st, and we've seen some back and forth here. And the latest that we've seen is two farm groups asking the Supreme Court to invalidate the voter-approved standards as an unconstitutional burden on farmers and consumers everywhere. Voters approved Prop 12 back in 2018, and like I said, it's been repeatedly challenged in court, usually as a violation of the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, and it has withstood those attacks. But the Supreme Court refused on June 28th to hear a challenge, and that was really the last that we've seen. Yeah, Ashton, I'm going to jump in really quick because I think... I had this piece of news as well. And I think we've mentioned it before on the podcast, but we kind of have two different 
schools of thought when it comes to this Prop 12 stuff. You look at ag, and of course, we want to get this thing thrown out. But then you look at folks on the other side of this issue, and they're questioning why agriculture isn't just following along. Why are they not, you know, playing the game, so to speak, and um, just taking this thing for what it's worth? You know, we've really been playing hard on the offense now and trying to get this thing thrown out. And a lot of folks are saying, hey, why is agriculture trying to get this thing thrown out? They've known this is coming. Why aren't they prepared? So it's kind of been a messy look overall. Well, Delaney, that's about all I had to talk about today. I'm hoping that we do see some movement here from the courts when it comes to Prop 12, although I am a little discouraged just because of the history of Prop 12 and its relationship with the courts, but I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. We certainly will, Ashton, but we don't have to wait and see what today's commodity markets did. How about we hop in there? Well, Delaney, before we get into the markets, we have got to talk about Performance Beef because, of course, that is the sponsor for today's episode. Performance Beef users have quick access to real-time accurate data The technology simplifies feeding to financial data, making it easy to generate real-time closeouts, update rations, or analyze performance trends all in one place. Your feed, financial, and health information are integrated in one easy-to-use platform accessible from your computer, smartphone, or tablet. You can find Performance Beef online to learn more and request a demo. Fantastic. Well, we certainly appreciate Performance Livestock Analytics uh, for being our sponsor for today. But Ashton, I'm going to go ahead and dive into the markets for today. Certainly saw a little bit of excitement today. We, of course, have a big report coming out on Thursday with the quarterly grain stocks report. And ahead of that time, markets don't quite know exactly how to react. We could get a little surprise because it seems like we usually do on this report. Today, we finished lower across the grain markets as the December corn contract down seven cents to end at 532 and a half. The March down six and a half cents to close at 540 and a half. In the soybean pits today, the November contract down 10 and a half cents to close at 1277. The January down 10 and a half cents to close at 1287. In the wheat pits today, we saw weakness across all wheat markets. With the hard red winter wheat today, December contract down 15 and three quarters cents to close at 705. The December Chicago contract down 15 and three quarters cents as well to close at 706 and a half. In the livestock markets today, we saw mixed trade in the cattle complex as the October contract shed 40 cents to close at 122. Beast live cattle down 30 cents today to close at 127.50. However, feeders had strength today as the October contract added a dollar 35 to close at 156 12 and a half. The November up a dollar 47 and a half to close at 157.05. Lean hogs saw strength today as well with the October contract adding $1.42 and a half to close at $91.67 and a half. The Dees up $2.02 and a half cents to close at $83.57 and a half. And lastly, wrapping up with today's class three dairy milk futures. October up 15 cents today to close at $17.66. The November up 25 to close at $17.53. Ashton, for today's Tech Tuesday interview, remind us who we're chatting with. Today, we are talking about B-Flow. Well, for today's Tech Tuesday interview, we have on the Director of Applied Research and Operations at B-Flow, Angelita De La Luz. 
Angelita, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. I am definitely excited to have this conversation about B-Flow. Thank you for having me. So before we get started chatting about the services that you guys provide, let's talk a little bit about yourself. What does your background look like? Were you involved in agriculture or any way before you joined B-Flow? So no, I don't have a background in agriculture. I, I actually got my PhD from UC Santa Cruz, where I spent a lot of time thinking about plant pollinator interactions in nature and how those interaction networks respond to climate change over time. And that PhD work really opened my eyes to the incredible amount of pollinator diversity that exists in nature, as well as how those networks naturally organize themselves to be stable. That is awesome. And it sounds like there is some really great work, you know, that you might have done in the past, but also, you know, what's going on here with the bee flow. So let's go ahead and jump into it from a 10,000 foot view. What is bee flow? Uh, B-Flow is a company that provides professional pollination services to farmers. We apply scientific knowledge and technology during crop pollination when the crop is blooming to increase crop yields and improve fruit, uh, food quality. So let's go ahead and get down into the services that you guys are providing. What is it that you guys do to really help these farmers? Um, yeah, so we're a startup out of Argentina. And as I said, we provide these professional pollination services to farmers. Um, our main focus is really to shine a light on a process that's not received a lot of attention in agriculture, where research and technology are often focused on things like chemical sprays, irrigation, and genetic breeding. However, for a lot of crops, these other factors don't matter much without the contribution of pollinators. So for us, it's a lot about, you know, going beyond just bringing bees to a farm, but really thinking about where do we place those bees on the farm relative to the natural environment, making sure that our bees are really healthy so we have a maximum number of foragers available to do the work on the farm, and also using our technologies to, to train the bees to stay on the crop and keep them out of natural systems where they might compete with native pollinators. So you, you say to train the bees. I want to talk a little bit more about that because that sounds very interesting. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, we use a process similar to, if you think about Pavlov's dogs, um, which a lot of people are familiar with. So we tie the smell of a specific crop to a high value sugar reward for bees inside of the nest or inside of the hive so that when those bees actually leave the hive to go do their work, they, they smell the crop and then they're more likely to visit it because they associate it with this really high value sugar reward. Um, if they don't have this training, they might actually abandon the crop if they find something else that they prefer. So something like maple that they just love because it gives a bunch of nectar, we can actually keep them off the maple and on the crop um, for a longer period of time. And this, this really matters in, in a crop with a short bloom time like apples, which only bloom for like a couple of weeks, two weeks maybe, where every bee hour, every minute that these bees spend on the crop matters toward the final yield for the farmer. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's very interesting, you know, that you use the Pavlov's dogs um, metaphor there. I think it's incredibly interesting that you can actually do that with bees. But moving on here, I want to talk a little bit more about the impact that you guys are making from a couple of different standpoints. Um, you know, on your website, you guys talk about um, from an economic, social, and environmental standpoint. So why don't we go ahead and hit those? Sure. So yeah, we find that when you enhance pollination 
production on a farm, you can actually increase the yields for a farmer. So this is in terms of either producing more, more food overall on that same plot of land, producing larger fruits in a lot of cases, even sweeter fruits. Um, so our ethos is doing more with less. So that means a less, um, less chemical sprays, such as fertilizers or insecticide, uh, less land expansion. So kind of using that same plot of land to produce more food and ultimately uh, increasing yields, which impacts the farmer's bottom line. Um, from a social standpoint, we can approach this through education. So we do a lot of education work with farmers and beekeepers kind of teach them how they can enhance pollination on their farm, how they can be more sustainable um, and how they can change maybe their management practices or just tweak them really to, 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 to reach these goals. And, and this all ties into the, the, your, uh, the point of environmental where not only can we reduce inputs into the soil such as fertilizers and chemical sprays, but we also work hard to increase biodiversity around in and around farms. So things like planting native plants that support pollinators and support the native pollinator community that surrounds the farm uh, and maybe even draw them in to do some of the work that honeybees are also doing and kind of build a, um, a collaboration, if you will, between these species. So what kind of farmers are you working with? You mentioned apples earlier. So is it just these kind of um, maybe specialty crops that you guys are working with? Or are you also working with producers on, on other things? Um, no, actually, 70% of the foods that we eat depend on pollination. And our goal is to work with, with all of them. So this goes beyond, you know, apples, avocados, blueberries, cherries, onion, almonds, kind of anything that produces a flower that needs a bee. Uh, that's what we are targeting. Gotcha. And if any of our listeners out there are interested in learning a little bit more about bee flow and maybe incorporating it into their operation, where can they find you guys at online? Uh, they can just go to beeflow.com. That's our website. But we also have an Instagram, uh, the beeflow. We have a LinkedIn page. So any of those kind of social media pages, we're, we're available. Awesome. Well, Angelita, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us about bee flow today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks again there to Angie over at Beeflow for coming on and chatting with us. It's always cool to learn a little bit more, especially about those more niche parts of agriculture. It certainly is, Ash, and that's definitely not something we touch on a whole lot, but I appreciate that we get to talk to folks literally all across the industry because agriculture is vast and we have a lot of people we could chat with day to day uh, who provide for our nation's food system. So it's really cool to talk about different parts of agriculture. It sure is, Delaney, and we're always talking about agriculture here on Ag News Daily. It's literally in our name, in our DNA, it feels like. So folks will have to tune in for more episodes of the podcast at agnewsdaily.com and follow along with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well at Ag News Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.